It's philosophy talk. We are encouraging our readers, you, to read a banned book this week. Is removing controversial books from school libraries the same as banning them? Who decides what books count as controversial? Well, a Virginia woman is doing all she can to remove six books from Virginia Beach schools, including Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, which this fool admits she hasn't read. Does it really matter if I can't get a book from my school's library, if I can have it delivered to my house tomorrow? There's often a run on these banned books when controversy leads to curiosity. Ever since Wentzville schools removed the bluest eye from their shelves, some local bookstores tell us they've had a hard time keeping copies on their shelves because of the high demand. Is banning a book the last step before burning it? It's our annual summer reading list. The Banned Books Edition. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you via the studios of KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today's episode is generously sponsored by the Stanford Division of Literatures, Cultures, and Languages. It's our annual summer reading special, the Banned Books Edition. The American Library Association says that last year, 1,597 books were challenged or removed from libraries, schools, and universities. Compare that to just 273 from two years ago. It's a record high. Yeah, and most of the challenged or removed books deal with themes relating to race or to sexuality and gender. And challenges actually come from both the right and the left. Just to be clear, we're not talking about literal bans here. I mean, it's not a crime to own one of these books. And if one of them has been removed from your school library, you could probably order it up, get it delivered to your house tomorrow. Right. And, and when schools remove books from the curriculum, they're not necessarily trying to ban anything. Sometimes students just want access to more contemporary books, books they think do a better job reflecting their realities. So to get us started, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to talk to some of those students. She files this report. If you want to feel good about the state of America's education system, stay away from YouTube videos of school board meetings about book banning. I'm sure we've got hundreds of people out there that would like to see those books before we burn them. In this one from Virginia, school board members appeared really passionate about the power and sway of literature. Just so we can identify within our community that we are eradicating uh, this bad stuff. This isn't the 1940s or 50s. This was 2021. The school board had directed staff to begin removing, quote, sexually explicit books from library shelves. And it's not just happening in a small community in Virginia. More books are being banned in the U.S. than ever before. Here's a TV ad from the 2021 Virginia governor's race. As a parent, it's tough to catch everything. So when my son showed me his reading assignment, my heart sunk. It was some of the most explicit material you can imagine. I met with lawmakers. They couldn't believe what I was showing them. The mother in this ad is talking about Toni Morrison's Beloved, a book assigned in her son's AP English literature class. Many of the books parents wanted banned featured LGBTQ themes or characters or dealt with racism. What was happening in Burbank, California in 2020 was different. 
The students involved in that effort just wanted a more equitable and up-to-date curriculum. We were just saying that our curriculum needed a shift and that to update it so that our curriculum reflects the world that we live in today. Destiny Helliger is a student at the Burbank Unified School District. She said this push to reshape the curriculum started with Romeo and Juliet. This was during a time when people in the district were worried about suicides. So we decided to put a pause on Romeo and Juliet. Later on, Romeo and Juliet came back and some families of color in our district decided that a lot of the books that contain the N-word could have that same effect on students of color and that these books were negatively impacting the mental health of students. So maybe we should just take a pause to reevaluate them. Some people were really upset that the superintendent was looking to take books out of the curriculum, like Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, To Kill a Mockingbird, and Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. It was just tense. It was incredibly tense, and there was a lot of people who didn't want to give up what they thought. That's Finn Kroll, another student at the school. He says teachers aren't always equipped or trained to explain why certain words are harmful. Finn is often the only transgender person in the room. He's had to educate classmates about a homophobic slur during a discussion on Catcher in the Rye. The first time I read about a trans person in a classroom wasn't even from a school curriculum. It was from my own research, and the fact that I was 14 before I even heard the word transgender is disappointing. Um, because that is who I am, and who I always will be, and who I am proud to be. And that should have been reflected in our curriculum. The school district did end up taking certain classics out of the curriculum, but students also wanted the district to add newer, more contemporary books. Destiny and Finn say so far they're disappointed. I was able to start the Destiny Education Project because I wanted to start putting some more action to where I wasn't seeing action. The Destiny Education Project is a BIPOC-led organization that aims to improve the American school system. She also started a peer-to-peer -peer reading group. I think my first experience there, it made me really emotional because I had never read a book in elementary school where there was a black character in it. And then I was reading this book called I Am Every Good Thing, where the main character is a young black boy. And I saw one of the students and he just like gasped and he was like, oh my God, that character looks just like me. As for Finn, he recommends the book Both Sides Now, about a transgender boy on the debate team who discovers that some things, like who you are and who you love, are not up for debate. And yet, here we are. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly J. McDeed. Thanks very much, Holly, for that report from the front lines. You know, I gotta say, Ray, Toni Morrison's one of my favorite authors. I teach her every single year. and I just find it astonishing to hear a parent of Virginia say, I don't want my son reading Beloved. Yeah, you know, some parents didn't just complain. In 2020, a school board in California voted to actually ban another one of Toni Morrison's novels, uh, The Bluest Eye. And the same thing happened this year in Wentzville, Missouri. The Bluest Eye got pulled from the library. I remember that. I mean, okay, they relented after an outcry, but still, why on earth did they want a ban in the first place? Well, I bet our first guest will have some thoughts about that. Paula Moya is professor of English at Stanford University and the author of The Social Imperative, which is a book about Toni Morrison, among other authors. So we asked her why she thinks that school boards want to ban the bluest eye. What's interesting is often the ostensible reason is because it treats some, you know, uh, situations that are really troubling, like child sexual abuse. But I actually think that um, there's 
much more animus, if you will, toward the racial politics of her books um, and how pointed she is about talking about the history of slavery in our country, the history of uh, racialized violence in our country. And so I can imagine that if I held some of that ideology myself, I wouldn't really want my children reading it because it might teach them something different than what I believed. Yeah, I mean, she's incredible. I mean, she's incredible at everything, but among other things, at telling the bleak history of uh, America's racial past. She does in incredible ways, well, throughout her novels, but including in A Mercy, which is a novel that you really turned me on to, Paula. Um, <laughs> you've written brilliantly about it, and that's a that's a novel that takes us back to a moment in uh, sort of pre-American history uh, yes. when when slavery is just about to be racialized. And, and you can imagine someone of the current, let's not have our children learn anything that might upset their delicate sensibilities uh, framework, <laughs> thinking, well, gee, I don't, I don't want my, my child to learn about uh, the truth of American history. Do you, th- you think that's what's underlying this? I do. And I get some of that idea from the really intense reaction, for instance, to the 1619 project that the New York Times published. Now, you know, I have my own issues uh, with every version of history, because oftentimes (laughs) any version of history tends to be very partial or very uh, targeted to a specific group. So I'm not saying that that was perfect. But it was really important for setting some of the record straight about, you know, what made our early America, you know, even before it was America. So but there was such an intense reaction um, to that um, project that it makes me realize that some people just don't want to hear about prehistory and slavery here in the in the United States. Yeah. So one thing I think is like really powerful in the bluest eye is is this figure of Dick and Jane. These are like ideal, like kind of implicitly white um, American family characters that she's just kind of taking apart. Yes. Like the characters in the novel who are more realistic than Dick and Jane don't really live up to this ideal and can't. Well, you know, one of the really interesting things is that Toni Morrison starts out The Bluest Eye with a kind of Dick and Jane narrative. And so You know, those of us of, say, my generation grew up with these readers that introduced us to the characters of Dick and Jane, who were these prototypically uh, white American, um, you know, middle class, you know, mother, father, brother, sister, dog, cat uh, kind of world. And she starts out with a conventional orthographic, you know, um, story of Dick and Jane and everybody being very happy and working out very well. And then in the next one, it's the same words, the same story, but with all the punctuation removed. And then in the next iteration, it's the same story, the same words, but with all the spaces and punctuation (laughs) removed so that it becomes very frantic, even in the visual aspect of looking at the Dick and Jane story. So it has this emotional impact on the reader that defamiliarizes that Dick and Jane story for us. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, she's always doing these incredible things. But the, the second half of Beloved, it's also just a b- brilliant tour de force of literary fireworks. But not just, of course, for their own sake, not just for fun, not just for aesthetic power, but they really hit you right in the gut. 
Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, it's often this idea that what we're so familiar with that we don't question it, we don't ask about it, we don't see it as strange. And so she has this way in her writing of making what seems or ought to be familiar to us strange that makes us then question it. So starting out right at the very beginning of that novel to make strange or to defamiliarize the kind of prototypical happy white middle-class family makes us then um, shift our thinking or our perception a little bit into seeing the story that she's about to tell us a little bit differently. Do you think that there is an alternative vision in there of a way things could be good or is just like telling the truth about ways things that are bad? Like, is that the project or is it like different in different novels? I think it's probably not different in the different novels, even though the way it manifests is very different. I think those two projects go together. So in the same way that we need to actually understand our, our real history in order to make a better future, I think Toni Morrison believes that we have to actually understand how people are to each other, how they act, how they interact, how they treat each other, in order to understand how we might be able to treat each other in a better so, you know, one, one thing she does in The Bluest Eye, as in other novels, is give us a tremendous amount of context about the characters, you know, which we can see as people, uh, about how they came up and why they have the attitudes they do and why they treat each other the way they do in order to understand how, you know, it might have gone differently and they might be able to do it differently. So I think there's those projects go together. She's not trying to make this neutral for us, and she wants to make us work. <laughs> so I think right. you're absolutely right about that. So I have a question about how this relates to sort of book banning. And I feel a little bit silly even giving voice to this objection because I don't believe it. Mm -hmm. But I can imagine somebody saying, look, it's all fine and good to reflect on the horrors of slavery, but like... A lot, of, a lot of Morrison's novels are pretty graphic and it's really intense. And is it too intense for high school kids to handle? Like, should we shelter them? Well, I guess I just want to give a little bit more credit to high school age children uh, <laughs> or young people, I'll say. Uh, one thing that I have to say about Morrison, and I, I suspect you'll agree with me, is that she's an extraordinarily talented writer. <laughs> you know, she's really able to convey ordinary and extraordinary experiences of human lives with a talent, you know, of using figural, you know, say metaphorical language that really is kind of unsurpassed. And I think one other thing I would say, uh, Ray, is that Morrison is never voyeuristic. You know, she doesn't allow the reader to get pleasure in this violence. Um, she portrays it very effectively, often using metaphors, but it is always with a framework that, um, you know, reminds us of that context that brought the person to that violence or to that um, predation that, you know, makes us really think about, you know, how we maybe got there. Yeah. And to my mind, that's exactly why high school kids should be reading Morrison. I mean, I'm not talking about obviously, you know, very young kids, yes. who are, right? Uh, but, you know, towards mm -hmm. the end of high school, 16, 17 years old, these are fantastic books, not just as a an entry into history and politics and really important questions that are still very much alive today, but also for just stretching your mind. I mean, these are 
tour de force novels that show you what a novel can be. Yes. And they're also they're political ruminations, they're philosophical ruminations. There's all this stuff in a mercy about the problem of suffering. Why does if there's a benevolent God, why is there so much suffering? Implicitly including slavery, of course. Yes. Um, and Morris is constantly thinking philosophically and raising the philosophical questions. What better thing for a 17-year-old to read? Exactly. And I think, you know, the uh, her books are deeply ethical. You know, they, they ask you to think about the choices that you're making and to think about how you want to take something that happened to you in the past into the future or not. So I think uh, it's... It's right at that age, you know, 16 or 17, where you're kind of learning how to be a person, you know, <laughs> that you have to learn how to make choices. And, you know, that, that all choices are not the same. All choices are not equal. And so I think reading Morrison's books and the way that she gives us appropriate context for how people come to be who they are, that she is able to, in a sense, instruct us and teach us how to be better people in the world. Paula Moya from Stanford University on why Toni Morrison should be on our reading lists year-round. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.